the tutoring thing we were like was our core thing it was what paid the bills but it was it became very clear very quickly that we didn't feel like this could be really big and we wanted to do something that was higher risk higher reward i think what stays consistent is what a startup needs to go through from zero to ultimate success and pre-seed is usually the way we think about it and we'll invest the pre-seed as well it's kind of this team market fit welcome back everybody to the founders corner today's episode is going remote but i have a very special guest for you guys we have pablo sorogo who is actually a founder turned vc and is actually a host of product market fit show and i'm super excited to have him on the show due to the fact that he was a founder and turned vc and he went from being um, you know, a, a leader in trying to pick out products and making product fit and actually creating a show around it to help founders and startups uh, do the same. Let's enjoy, uh, let's welcome uh, Pablo. Pablo, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, Seb. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Excellent. Pablo, um, you know, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on the show strictly because of the fact that we have very few people that go from the founders world and into the into the VC angel world. So why don't you give, give us a little background about you? How did you how did you start and how did you get where you are today? Sure, I'll give you the, the quick story and then we can dive into whatever part you find most interesting. So I studied economics at Carleton University in Ottawa and really went into it thinking I wanted to be a lawyer. In fact, I wanted to, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was like 10 years old. I was pretty, pretty determined that that was the one thing I wanted to do. And I took economics because I took one class and I liked it. And I found it was, it was, uh, you know, I was well suited to do well there. And really when it comes to being a lawyer, it's all about what grades you get, plus how do you do in your LSAT? So that was really a strategy. And kind of going through it and taking some law classes in, in undergrad, decided that that path was really not not the one for me. It was just not going to be nearly as interesting as I thought. It was going to be, you know, very big firms, high kind of hierarchy that wouldn't wouldn't fit my wouldn't fit who I am. I don't think. And so, I you know, for the first time ever, really midway through through my undergrad, realized I really didn't know what I wanted to do, and that's when. I had a friend of mine who was in a similar boat. He wanted to go to med school and also decided he didn't. And so we started talking about, well, what else could we do? And and the idea of starting something, of, of running a business resonated with both of us. And so we started right. working on like different, you know, business plans through that, through those, through those years, won a few competitions, but never really went anywhere. In fact, most of those ideas were, were pretty bad. And so, <laughs> you, you know, while this is happening, I was a TA for, for several courses and going into my fourth year had come to really depend on that income to pay my rent and, and my bills okay. and so and so forth. And I get this email a couple of weeks before the semester starts that they had run out of undergraduate you know, TA funding for undergraduate students. It was only masters and PhD students that wow. would get TA ships. I'm like, okay. And so I did the closest thing, which was tutoring. And so I, I actually almost got hired by a tutoring company. But then when I decided that they were making like, you know, 50% margins on me just for a website, I decided, I'm just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, a true entrepreneur. that's a true entrepreneur right there. It's, ah, you're making too was, much money. I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> it was like a, you know, 20 year old website with like keyword clouds, right? Plus flyers in the school. Yeah. They're charging $50 an hour and I'm making 25 and I have to sign an exclusivity agreement that says I'm not allowed to tutor on my own. Right. 
I'm like, right, right. all right, this is a little too egregious. So I just put up some flyers, started tutoring on my own, you know, freelance work, really nothing, nothing too special. But anyways, by, you know, fast forward to like end of fourth year and uh, my friend and I, we had no like real ideas to, to move forward with. I'm doing this tutoring thing. I'd gone to a point where I was giving tutoring to some of my friends because I didn't have bandwidth to, to, to do it. We're not talking big numbers, but, but it was like, it was positive. Right. And so I said, yeah. why don't we just expand on this and create like a, a university tutoring marketplace sort of thing, like tech enabled, still more services than, than startup, but, but it'll get us going. And so that's what we did. We launched my tutor coming out of university. Um, that kind of got us going. It was interesting business because it wasn't, it was easy to run, right? Like we're talking about once right. we, once we built the website and built the, the stuff and, during the week it's you know you get a call you assign a tutor and you're kind of done you're running it on five ten hours yep. a week yeah and for better or worse we were living together my friend and i at the time were roommates and so we're spending the other 50 hours just brainstorming random ideas right and that's what ended up so you know, so this was to, still on yeah. the back burner you guys were still trying to figure out what's next for you guys but the tutoring thing is kind of just like you know trucking away yeah the tutoring thing we were like was our core thing it was what paid the bills but it was it became very clear very quickly that we didn't feel like this could be really big and we wanted to do something that was higher risk, higher reward. I love it. And so we were and you want constantly to be a lawyer. coming up with ideas. I well, that like was where it started. Exact, yeah, I feel like you have the engine for as an entrepreneur. So that's really interesting that you went into law school because usually law school, I, I find, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm more than happy for you to tell me if I'm wrong, but I find that, uh, you know, law is, is so structured. It's so like, it's almost black and white with a little gray in the middle, right? And it's really how you tell that story and, and entrepreneurship is so not at all black and white if there's any black and white in fact so that's uh that's really cool and and so you 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 were brainstorming sorry i did interrupt you so you were brainstorming no it's all ideas. good and just and just on that like i mean i never went to law school i just i did my undergrad and decided right yeah because of exactly what you said that i didn't that i didn't want to go that way that it was right. going to be overly detailed folk it just wasn't going to be a good fit for me so that's that's totally right and so so anyways yeah at some point you know this idea for automatic workout tracking kind of starts to form and um and and we just yeah so we, we decided to jump on that kind of this was we're talking 2013 now we've been running my tutor for like six to 12 months and we ended up we ended up selling my tutor and going all in on this gym track thing and that was like a five-year roller coaster i mean we yeah. you know went through 500 startups and in, in sf we raised like six million dollars and we spent six million dollars it was hardware or software it was ai it was like it was just way too much for two young business types to to take on but we did and and so that was a five-year journey and i can go into that but really coming out of that was when one thing led to another and i was introduced to the the founders of of Mistral, which is the, the firm I work at now, which was a seed stage firm, still is a seed stage firm that invests across Canada. And I decided to join them. And so that was mid 2018 and, and really haven't looked back since. And, and so how are you love, I'm, I'm saying love, I'm assuming you love it, but how are you yes. loving the transition between being a founder yourself and being now on the other side of the seat where all founders are trying to convince you, hey, this is a great idea. You need to invest in it. It's you trading really what it comes down to is trading depth for, for breadth. So with gym oh, track, 
it was all about literally if it was gyms or hardware, it mattered. And if it wasn't, it just didn't. And so anything else going on in the world was kind of irrelevant. And I think that's how intensely and insanely focused you need to be to yep. even have a chance at, at a startup working with with VC, it's it's the opposite. Like you really can't go that deep into anything. You don't have the bandwidth mm -hmm. to do it, but you get to go into whatever you want, whenever whenever you want, right? And so everything right. that's going on in the world starts to be relevant. And so, it just really comes down to, uh, you know, I'll just tell you like, I know many VC, I think most VCs I know would not be great founders and many, many great founders would not make good VCs. So it's not fully translatable. That, that's I, that's why I'm very interested in your story because it is not an easy transition because usually founders exactly what you said breath for uh, depth that's I I think the best phrase I've ever heard anyone use the transition because because you know we talk to angels we talk to VCs and and reality of it is is it's a completely different mindset on 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 product and 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 such and as a as an angel or sorry as a founder. You're so corely focused on the product. You're so corely focused on the business model that you're right. It's it's literally you just you breathe it. That's that's your life. And then as a VC, um, when when you guys mentioned seed, like what is the definition of seed to you guys? I always ask this for every angel and VC, right? Because everybody has a slightly different iteration of it. What is your guys' definition of a seed? What does that mean to you guys? What are you guys looking for? It's a great question. And the reality is, you know, rounds change, naming nomenclature changes and so on. I think what stays consistent is what a startup needs to go through from zero to ultimate success. And pre-seed is usually the way we think about it. And we'll invest in pre-seed as well. It's kind of this team market fit situation where you have a team with an idea, a defined market they're going after, hasn't, you know, pre-revenue, often pre-product. And, yeah. and that's the best. And then although we, we always tell that to our startups, by the way, is, uh, go, go sell the product before you even launch. Um, we, we say like, go get a product advisory board. That is pretty much a sure thing that at least some of them are going to join your product because you're, they're helping you build that product. So, so, okay. I like that. So pre-seed, um, is considered something where you're, it's a product, uh, fit at least some sort of pre-selling and a team fit. Got it. Okay. Yeah, team team market fit really being the core thing. And then all the way at the other extreme, which is Series A, those are always raised on the concept of product market fit, which is you have yeah. a product in market and more than anything, you're feeling true market pull. You really feel like you're solving a clear problem and the market is, you know, kind of that quote of pulling it out of your hands. That That's like mm -hmm. the kind of definition, let's say, of yeah. product market fit. And the closer you are to that, the better in between those two things is where seed comes and seed for us is proven value proposition. Okay. And so if you think about like, if I give you an example of, let's say some e-commerce software startup that's selling something that is going to improve the conversion, right? So let's just, right. you know, it doesn't matter what it is. The question becomes, does it actually improve conversion? If it does, right. then what you have, in my opinion, at that point is proven value prop. And at that point, that's kind of the classic seed It's like, okay, your product's actually being used by some customers. And it's the KPI you thought you were going to impact. It's actually impacting the value you thought you were going to deliver is proven. That's seed. Then from there, yeah. you've got to go and go from a handful of customers to way more customers and understand your ICP and understand, you know, your niche and yeah. all these sort of things. So you're at a point where the stuff just flying off. 
you know, off the shelves, then that's kind of product market fit. So that's the way we think. Yeah, that, that's a, that's brilliant because uh, the way I always say it is that uh, seed pre-seed is product fit. Um, and then um, pre-seed is market fit. You're trying to find that market and figure out what the value prop looks like. And then series A is growth. How do you, how do you scale it to the next level? Um, once you have the product now, you have the market fit. Now you go, okay, how do I expand this business to go to market basically, right? So yeah, you're pretty much in line with exactly how I would imagine pre-seed. What is the number one um, advice you have at being a founder yourself and being in, on the other side of seed now? What is the number one advice you have for most early stage founders? This could be pre-seed, seed um, stage uh, startups. I think the number one reason why <clears throat> really early stage, you know, pre-product market fit companies fail, I would say this applies to 80, 90% of the companies that I've seen fail is that they're, they're really not solving an important enough problem. And mm. so the, the, the number one piece of advice becomes make sure you're solving a number one or number two priority problem for your customers. Are you talking and, about TAM yeah. specifically, like the like the target market? Like, is, is it a big enough of a market? Or are you talking about like a problem where it's like people are willing to like, it, be, it's becomes, it becomes incredibly sticky because that's how much of a problem you're solving? I'm almost, uh, yeah, it's a great, it's a great cl clarifying question. I'm almost specifically not talking about TAM. I think okay. focusing on market size in the early days uh, can can easily lead you astray because it's easy to get yeah. hyped up on big Gartner reports and whatnot. What I'm talking about is clear value delivery. Like that mm -hmm. is the number one sign that things are going to work in the long run is if your customers are getting true value. And in order for them to get true value, you need to first actually uncover a problem that is a true number one or number two priority problem. It's easy right. enough to have a thing and go to 10 people and say, Hey, like, would you buy it? And have them be like, yeah, I would buy it. It's a totally different thing to go to those 10 people and say like, Hey, what's your number one problem? And they're like, it's X, it's X. And you hear that over and over. And now you're kind of, if you can solve that, you're going to meet them where they are, right? You're going to solve a right. top of mind problem. That's, that's one of the, and that's why oftentimes because you don't go through those motions and you don't uncover a problem. That's really number one or number two, you're constantly in this push motion where you're trying to convince people to buy your product, right. to buy your product, and you're mm -hmm. and you're just almost unable to transition into into what you want, which is this kind of pull motion. And if you start off that way, it's going to be near impossible to get to, you know, hundred million dollars in revenue. Got it. I I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, the the solving of the problem. The one thing I'll say though, right now is, it's easy to build. And I'm sure you can attest to this. It's easy to build a simple pro product and launch. And that's the easiest thing to do. And I feel like so many companies and startups have done that. How do you suggest navigating the world today with so many products, so many uh, platforms, products, softwares, like it, so many people are solving the problem. How do you how do you suggest a like a founder trying to navigate the world? Like how do you how do you find that problem? How what's the what's your suggestion on t tackling that issue? Because I the, think the and, way... and, and 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 to clarify, like for example, if you look at today, the the market you can find almost any product for anything. <laughs> 
<laughs> like if you Google, Google anything, like I'm having a problem with this software and it'll pop up. I'm sure of it. <laughs> so how do you suggest like, you know, founders navigating that? Because, because I agree with you. I think, I think the problem is the number one thing, but I think so many people have solved so many different problems that there's a problem within that itself. <laughs> that there's too Yeah, many it's problems. totally fair. There's a lot. I mean, and especially in the software and SaaS world, like there's so many things that are, that have already been solved. I think if you go and, you know, kind of look through a lot of the biggest companies and thinking and kind of trying to create these frameworks of how they came up with their idea. And, and as far as I could see, there's effectively four ways to come up with an idea, which is really what we're getting at here. And I would argue if like, so the way that most bad ideas get formed, including as an example, gym track, which I would consider a, a bad idea, right? Which is my previous startup is this kind of like, wouldn't it be cool if, right? So like you've got right. a founder who somehow for some reason thinks to himself, man, wouldn't it be cool if you could do blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. and then they go all in on that thing, right? And for yeah. us, wouldn't it be cool if your workouts were tracked? Wouldn't it be cool? Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I was talking to the founders of, uh, of Pluto who now have a successful startup, but originally they were trying to get businesses to pay using Bitcoin. And it was like, wouldn't it be cool if you could use Bitcoin to transact? Like, and, and the challenge with that is that you're not actually ingrained enough in the lives of your customer. And so yeah. that idea is often just, it's just, yeah, it rarely leads to something good. So what does lead to something good? And, I, and I've kind of seen like four frameworks, right? Two of them are pretty well-known, pretty established, right? So one is, you know, just scratching your own itch. So you, you actually yep. find a problem in your own life. You're obviously an expert of your own life and you see something that actually isn't solved and you go ahead and you solve it. That's like the how Shopify was born, right? Like Toby yep. didn't have an e-commerce platform. He could use to sell snowboards. So he built it and, there, and then you get Shopify. So that's like one, yep. that's one framework. Another framework is like the 10X better product, which again, very classically well-known. Oh, sorry. It's like you're, <laughs> you, you get stung there. Yeah, no, something, uh, something creeped me out from right here. Sorry, continue. Yeah, so uh, can we go back from the Shopify part? The so, you know, yeah, frame, framework number one, which is very common, is like scratch your own niche. So this is like Toby tries to sell snowboards online, doesn't have a good e-commerce platform he can use, so he decides to build one. And it so happens that other people have that problem as well. So then you right. get Shopify. The other one, which is really classic, is create a 10x better product. And so this is where you find a product in the market, like a WebEx, which does not solve the problem well. It's kind of a garbage product. And you find a way to build something that's truly 10x better, like a Zoom. Yeah. You know, so that's another kind of framework. Those are two pretty classic frameworks that that tend to work to create actually good startups. Why is that? One of them, when you think about scratching your own itch, you are an expert in your own life. So if you can't find right. the problem, the product, it is a real problem. And the question becomes, are you alone or is there a million of you that has that problem? That's yeah. the kind of assumption. When it comes to 10x better products, you have a product that's already in market. And so clearly there's already demand for that product. And the key question mm -hmm. is, is your product truly 10x better or is it like 10% better, right? So that's where the key risk lies in that in that framework. The other one is um, become an expert in an industry and find true unsolved problems. And I think this is one where it's the most actionable from a, from a founder's perspective because you can look at markets that you find interesting, that you find compelling and truly become experts. What does it take to become experts? Like this is like the 10,000 hour kind of Malcolm Gladwell yeah. thing, right? Like either you've worked in this industry for decades and you know this stuff, or you've got to get really explicit about becoming an expert. And just so you know, like, and I spoke with many founders about this, the ones that have done true research, like they, they, they're doing hundreds of interviews. It's not 10 or 20 yep. customer interviews. Yep. They're going in the talking to 500 type. Like that's literally the number that I keep hearing. So now when you do that, you get to truly understand the customers in that industry, understand what their day is like, understand what their challenges are and find 
actually meaningful unresolved problems versus superficial problems that you think are real, but are, are actually for whatever reason, not, and won't yeah. lead to buyers. Um, and the last one, just for completion is the, almost the hardest one, I think, to, to, to action. And the one that can lead to, that can really lead to a straight, but can also lead to massive opportunities, which is a top-down approach used by like a Jeff Bezos. Right. And so this is, right. you identify a trend like the internet exploding and you go from that trend to hmm, the internet's exploding. What should I build? Oh, well, maybe selling things online will be a big deal. Or maybe selling books is a, is a good idea because it's easy to sell books. Let's go sell books online. Like that's kind of how, you know, or like Elon yeah. Musk, the way he comes up from batteries to, to, you know, deciding that he wants to get into electric cars. So like that's a top down approach easily can lead you astray because you read a Gartner report and it sounds like this market's yeah. going to explode and you don't know enough about the market, whatever. But those are the four ways I think you can find problems that are truly worth solving. Well, yeah, the, the, in the in the fourth case scenario, I mean, you got AI right now. Um, it's Correct. it's blowing up. It's everybody is an expert now. Um, I think the uh, the other day, one of my uh, friends actually shared a post where the there's a job opening and they're looking for an AI um, engineer, but they're not the, no requirements on engineering, computer science, nothing like that. And it's kind of like you know, you're getting into the world of, of the number four, which is I read a report and I think this would be a good fit. What about, um, I really like the 10,000 hour concept because I, I, every time we do talk to founders, uh, the first thing we say is, are you an expert and what makes you the expert? Right. Um, because if you, if you look at a lot of the people who have had those conversations, they're the ones in the weave of it all. I guess it kind of relates back to your one. Uh, which is uh, solve your own itch kind of concept, right? How do you how do you target? Like how do you how do you go about doing it? Because realistically, it, it does take a team to build. Let, let's let's stick to specifically SaaS, right? Like you need a lot of you need a team behind you to be able to help you out. How do you suggest getting even this thing started? Let's say you have an idea. Let's say you've had. 50 conversations with 50 people, you know, you're pretty much on the, on the money uh, in, in terms of what you're looking for at the building. What is your suggestion on what's the next steps for them? What should they do? How should, what, what is the most ideal scenario for them? Yeah. So, I mean, and hopefully it's, you know, it really is going from 50 to 500, I think conversations. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I don't mean to be facetious, but, but that really is, that really is the thing. And, and I, I was surprised to hear, just how much it takes to go from like a high level kind of cool idea to something that's that's actually going to work. And just the details that you refine over those conversations are are so critical. So I think that, it, and then it's just a matter of kind of scaffolding your way to a fully fledged, you know, kind of classic MVP. I think though a lot of what what I've seen a lot of founders do wrong, like, is almost too too eager to embrace like the lean startup methodology which I think yes. has been great to optimize solutions. But what's, what often happens is a founder will do like these 10, 20 conversations and be like, oh, I've got something. I've got to create an MVP and I've got to get it out there and see what happens. Yes. And what you're doing when you do that too early is you're, if you imagine like every problem is like a hill and you found this little tiny hill that maybe is actually like really hard to climb and you're going up that hill and you're trying to go up that hill and you put it on MVP and you see if it works and you see if it works. And maybe best case scenario, you climb that hill, which by the way is really hard to climb and it's tiny. You didn't realize that there was a massive hill over there. If only you would ask better questions, if only you would have done better research, mm -hmm. that was easier to climb and bigger. 
right? And so you're right. optimizing for for the wrong things. And so I think that's one of the biggest, that's one of the hardest steps in um, in value creation, right? I, I mentioned like seed is all about creating true value. One of the hardest mm-hmm. steps is staying in this kind of research mode for long enough because right. what a founder is, the DNA of a founder is a builder. That's That's who founders are. By definition, we want yes. to build, we want to sell. The last thing we want to do is research. It's just not the thing that we're not academics. We're not scientists. No, no founder likes research. I'll tell you that right exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and so, and, and there's a psychological element to that as well, by the way, which is if you are in this quote unquote research mode and you, I mean, you still go and you, you like have family, you have friends, people always ask like, what are you up to? Right. What are you doing? I'm a lawyer. I'm a this. You're like, I'm a founder. Oh, cool. What's your startup? Oh, I don't know. Right. I don't know because yeah, I'm in yeah, research. Yeah. Like, I don't, it's yeah. so awkward. And so the last, this is, you don't, nothing, nothing, everything tells you not to do that. Everything tells you to just go out there, put something out, start selling. And so because of those things, because of those psychological elements, founders rush through this discovery piece and they'll put out an MVP and they'll start iterating on it. And maybe if they get lucky, they find something and they solve a problem, but it's a small problem and it's hard to really, and they get stuck in push mode. And if they're yeah. unlucky, the thing just totally doesn't work and they have to do like some sort of hard pivot. So I think that's the, you know, if you ask me like, what's the right thing to do after you've done some conversation, you feel like you've got something is do way more, like get to, and through that, by the way, you're going to find, cause I know what you're trying to get to like, but at some point through that, you're going to find, for example, your first few customers, you're going to find potentially even your first few advisors or like industry experts because you've had these conversations with them and they've bought into what you're trying to do. Um, and then like, frankly, the hardest, one of the hardest pieces, once you really are sure and you've done hundreds of interviews and you feel like this is a legitimate thing is finding those co-founders. And frankly, like, you know, there is no magic formula. The reality is if you look at startups that have worked, like most of them that have co-founders, I mean, most of them were people that were already building stuff together, like Wozniak and and Steve Jobs or, you know, Toby and his, and his, um, and Scott Lake and so on that were, that were building Shopify. It wasn't like, oh, you know, founder did this and then went out and did these motions in order to find a co-founder. Honestly, that's like, I don't have good answers for, for that, that side of it. Right. Yeah. And, and so how realistic do you think it is to, I, I agree with you, most founders are not researchers and, and to be honest, they t- ask terrible questions and, and, and their, their questions um, uh, you can tell me your experience. In my opinion, their questions are leading questions, which is a big no-no in, in the research world, right? You 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 kind of ask the questions in a way, uh, well, founders do. They ask questions in a way where they're kind of like pushing you towards giving the answer they want to hear, right? Because no, no founder wants to get hurt. No founder wants to know their idea is not good, right? So what is your suggestion on how to approach that? Because realistically, you have to, like, I've taken research in university. I've done research. Uh, We've had a podcast with a researcher. Um, We hire a researcher. We don't do our own research because it's, 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 it's not easy. How do you suggest someone doing that? Is it best to give that to someone else and get the list and put it together? Or are you just saying, have those casual conversations they will not because i also find casual conversations also make the founder um not tunnel vision but kind of become like they get too much information <laughs> and then they they try to process too much information and then they it kind of like leads them to a dark path as well no 
it, 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 it's an interesting thought. I mean, I, I honestly, like the challenge is, I think the, the found it's the founder's job to be as close as possible to the small, the small details of their customers, mm-hmm. like all. I really agree with that. Yeah. And so I do think that ultimately, look, the reality is we can talk about this all day and still people are going to still founders, first time founders are going to rush through this. Just stuff start the product. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I think more than anything, they want to build and they want to sell. And like, that's just yes, not that's going right. to change. That's just the reality of it. But I, you know, one, one thing to think about is like, look, if, if you're serious about this, this is a seven to 10 year journey. And yes. wouldn't you much rather spend a few more months up front to make sure that that journey is worthwhile to make sure that you're going after the biggest thing, the most impactful thing that you could go after? Versus rush through those early months just because you want to get going and then end up wasting many years, two, three, four, five years because you realize you've built something that is just a nice to have, which, you know, happens like all the time. So I actually love that you brought up the seven, 10 year uh, rule. Um, I think the big, biggest reason why most of them do not take that time. And I agree with you. I think I think most startups need to understand that this is a seven year, seven, 10 year process but they don't consider it that way, right? That what the way they look at it is, I might become rich in three years because that's the stories they've heard, right? Like you, you wanna consider it misinformation, we can consider it misinformation, but like reality of it all is, is the fact that most founders go as fast as possible because they think things should be done in three, four, five years. So how do you change that mindset? Because I think that's a mindset issue rather than them understanding that this is a set because i always say it takes 10 years for you to be an overnight success that's my that's not like it's the same concept of the ten thousand hours it's kind of like that trend right um but it takes you 10 years to be an overnight success and a lot of new founders that we see all the time they do not understand that nor do they want to understand they, they kind of believe that their idea is the million dollar idea and they're going to be massive in three years how do you how do you kind of go and kind of give them that information. Hey, this is a seven, 10 year process. Take your time, actually build a profitable business, <laughs> which is what we're all in for. It, it's, it's like the, the million dollar question, right? At, at the end of the day, yeah. <laughs> and the flip side to it, by the way, and, is like, uh, there's obviously value to founders being, having that, the other mindset, right? Like, which is yes, like, yeah, yes. I, I understand the average is seven to 10 years, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to crush it in three. Like yes. there's something that, that you get from that confidence and even, you know, like risk adjusted starting a startup might not be that logical. And so you kind of need these people yeah. to be illogical almost in order for them to keep creating you have to uh, be. the sort of innovations <laughs> that the world needs. Right. And so yeah. there's, there's kind of a, I guess a balance there. Part of it, I think just comes with time. Like as you go and you do, let's say the wrong motions, you then decide like, okay, like what's going on here? Why did, like for me, I went through gym track, right? I did five years. And then after that, you start thinking like, okay, how could I have figured those things out faster? Like what, what didn't I do right? And so on. And so, you know, repeat founders tend to come at this from a different perspective. Which is why they're more fundable. Um, Which is why, gen- yeah, generally they, yeah. they do, they do. And I think the yeah. way I look at it is just, you know, in, in startup, in startup land, uh, mistakes are unavoidable, but avoidable mistakes are unaffordable. And and yeah. that's really what it comes down to is like the, the repeat founders, it's not that they don't make mistakes. They just make less avoidable mistakes. And, yeah. and that's really one of the keys to just dialing up your odds of success is, is knowing what mistakes you truly can avoid and making sure you avoid them. Yeah. 
Um, when a founder, uh, when a founder wants to approach an angel or a VC, what's the best time to do that in your opinion? And how is the best way to do it? I think there's two, there's kind of two frameworks. Like one is for the later, for like the seed. And then certainly for the series A is my, my, there's, there's a different path. I think for that than kind of your, your angel rounds. So like the, the angel rounds, I think, and let's talk about a first time founder. Like if you're a repeat founder, a successful repeat founder, especially it's very easy for you to raise a million or $2 million. Yep. And I don't think you need, you know, any much money. So let's say you're a first time founder without really much of a network and you're trying to raise like your first angel round. And then the smartest thing to do is to spend a lot of time in the really early days, getting as much, like just having as many meetings that are more like advice type meetings. And and you might want to join accelerators and things like that. I think like I joined founder stars was really useful. Obviously the better the accelerator, like YC will go way yeah, farther than non-brand yeah. name accelerator. So like yeah, all those yeah. things help, but, but you really do want to have as many of these discussions with advisor types as possible. And what you're trying to do is kind of pull them in, get more and more buying. These are advisors that could theoretically be angels, but the thing is, you're unlikely to raise an angel round when you have like true meaningful traction. And so if you kind of wait and you're like, okay, I'm ready, let's go raise a round. And you don't have any sort of pre established relationship built. It's going to be really hard to get half a million dollars across the line. And so if you just start by doing these kind of low stakes relationship building advice seeking kind of exercise, yep. and you kind of get those going, or I've seen work as you get those going, you know, over time, you, you make progress in your startup, you're making sure to communicate that to your to these kind of relationships you're building and then some sort of catalyst event starts, whether it's, you know, something really meaningful happens within your startup, or maybe it's somebody raising their hand and being like, Hey, like you should really think about raising around. Like I'd be interested in participating, like something like that. And then you flip it. And now, now you've got this pool of like warm leads, let's say that you can go to and, and, and be like, Hey, this person wants to invest $50,000. So I'm going to raise 200 K I'm going to raise 500 K I'm going to raise a million, whatever, you know, are you interested? And it's not starting from zero. So I think that's the best way to do that part of it. When it comes to the later rounds, like the seed and series A rounds that you're raising more often than not from institutional VCs whose full-time job it is to, to do this, it's a bit different. Um, I still think there's there's real value in, then there's this whole debate about like, do you establish relationships or do you kind of just not? Yep. And there's there's really two, there's, I think, I, I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. Like in a sense, I feel you should kind of do both. The, the best place to be in that I've seen is if you can get yourself to a seed or series A with a handful of warmed like VCs that you have had multiple three, four discussions with that have kind of tracked you. And so they're warmed up and you know them. So there's a bit of a relationship because you are taking a risk. You're going to sell 10, 20% of your right. business to someone yep. you're hoping that it's going to be a good fit. Right. And so you've done that, but then by the, but then when you actually go out to raise, these are the difference between angels and VCs, VCs, are easy to identify. They have websites that like you can really run yeah. a process if you want. Yeah. Angels are harder to find. And so angels when you are do very go out to challenging raise, to find. Yeah. Angels correct. Are very like top hard. of the funnel. Yes. So you, that's why you kind of got to go one by one and kind of build this thing. Whereas with VCs, it's not a bad idea to have three, four, five of them that you have these deeper relationships with that have tracked you because not only does it give you feedback, it also kind of gives you a leg up when you do go out to fundraise because those right. conversations start pretty aggressively. But then you also add to it 30, 40, 50 brand new VC kind of hits right. so that you're really running a tight process. Cause the, the reality is like 
FOMO is just one of your best friends when it comes to yep. getting around raised effectively and quickly at terms that are favorable to you. And yep. so you do have to find a way to leverage that. I find there's oftentimes founders that do only one or the other. Like some founders will be like, oh, I've got these five, six VCs. I want to raise from one of them. I don't want to go cold and I don't want to, you know, kind of go and spray mm -hmm. and pray, whatever. And there's the other ones that are like, I don't want to build relationships. I'm just going to wait. And then when I'm really ready, I'm going to press go on 60. Right. I think the optimal solution is to honestly, is to, is to do both. And, and yeah, I think because having those relationships helps you craft your story, but it also helps you start with an edge. And then I think having those 50 or so kind of, um, you know, colder relationships all go at the same time is going to build FOMO. It's going to build momentum. And I think uh, a lot of people, what people don't realize is VCs and angels, well, angels maybe less so, but VCs for sure are looking for that deal pipeline. They're willing to have conversations. You shouldn't be scared of VCs in my opinion, because they're, they're also looking out to see what's the next new big thing, right? Like they're, they, they need to spend the money that they raised in order to make a return for their uh, LPs, right? So I think, uh, I think you're bang on with the relationship thing. I think that's a really neat idea because I think that can really help reduce because I think a lot of people don't realize it takes six to six months to a year to raise money, right? And, and if you don't have any of those relationships, you're looking more towards the 12 months versus the six months, right? Uh, I think people just really they think, hey, tomorrow I'm going to start raising. I'll raise it by three months. I'm crushing it, right? And it's just not that, that fast. Like you'd have to be in a completely different mind uh, space uh, to do that. So um, couldn't agree more. What is, where can people find, because uh, I, I think today we talked a lot about product market fit and trying to figure out what that fit looks like, where you can pick at. And makes total sense because your your show is all about that. Where can they find their your show and 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 does, like tell us more about the show? So yeah, I mean so the firm, by the way, is called Mistral, and so we're a seed stage Mistral, firm. Yeah. We invest across across the nation, across uh, verticals. We write uh, usually first check is about a million dollars, and and we tend to we can follow, but we we're happier to to lead rounds we have a really simple mission. We just want to work with best founders in Canada and build startups that matter. That's really what okay. we've been doing for the last 10 years and what we'll be doing for next, you know, many decades how, to come. How big is, how big is your fund? So we're and, on our third fund now and it's okay. a $55 million fund. And are you guys across Canada only or are you North America? We do a bit in the U S maybe 20% okay. or so in the U S. And so we'll look at things that come, that come in, but in terms of our strategy, it's really around, around Canada. Okay, cool. And then uh, product market fit show, where do they find it? Yeah. And so, so Mistral is Mistral.vc. And then the product market fit Perfect. show is a show that, that we started kind of within the firm and where we interview founders of late stage startups, but we go really Love deep it. on the pre-product market fit stage. Like, so we don't really look at all the other stuff. The goal is really simple. It's, you know, fr frankly, I started because I wanted to become an expert on product market fit. And yep. I think you know, people who listen also want to become experts on product market fit. Maybe they're early yep. stage founders, maybe they're early stage VCs, but either way, they have a vested interest in becoming an expert of product market fit. So that's what we're doing is we're dissecting it through through interviews, through other types of episodes where we just, you know, kind of pull out some of the best observations from different different founder stories again, but it's really zero to product market fit and it's available on Apple Podcasts and, and on Spotify and kind of all the podcast players called the product market fit show. Because I do, I do agree. I think a lot of startups need to understand what it means to have product market fit, 
because a lot of them do run before they can crawl or even walk. <laughs> right. And I always say like, it, yes. if you're, if, yeah, if you, if you start crawling and you start walking a little bit, run, start running. Sure. Like you'll, you'll fall and you'll learn, but as long as you're learning, whatever it is, what it is. But yeah, that's exactly why most companies and most startups pivot within the first three years because they didn't take that time and approach like you're mentioning. So I love, I love what you're saying. And I love, uh, I'm definitely a big fan of research. Like we do it all the time. Um, I think you're right. There has to be a balancing act and, and it's, it's just not something seen very often. Right. So. Awesome. I'm glad you liked it. All right. Awesome. Pablo, thanks so much for taking the time and being with us here today. Um, and, uh, and helping our startups and founders, uh, kind of get a better guide as to where they should be in the next, uh, three years. Like I said, like you said, sorry, uh, it is a seven, 10 year journey. So uh, strap in <laughs> lots of ups, lots of downs, right? So awesome. Uh, to everybody at home. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you're interested in Pablo's, uh, show, do follow, uh, try to find them on part. It's called product market fit show. Um, and it's available on, uh, Apple, uh, Apple, you said, right, Pablo, Apple and Spotify. Yeah, Apple or Spotify. That's right. Yeah. Perfect. Um, awesome. And, uh, and if they have any questions, uh, do they, should they follow you on LinkedIn or anything like that? Sure. Like, okay, cool. So we'll put uh, your LinkedIn as well. So if you have any questions for Pablo, feel free to comment down below. We'll, we'll definitely uh, pass it off. Uh, or you can follow him on LinkedIn. Awesome. Until next time, guys, uh, like and subscribe, and we'll see you guys next time. Corridor out.